Hey everybody, Blair Fraser here. Welcome back to another episode of Technology Innovation Series of Maintenance Disrupted, where we take a deeper dive into the people and technology fueling Industry 4.0. On this episode, we welcome Doug Wachin of UE Systems to discuss the OnTrack Smart Lube System, the first ever of its kind for remote bearing monitoring and lubrication. But we do have a few housekeeping items before we dive in. First, as you know, we have rebranded Rob's Reliability Project to Maintenance Disrupted and have launched our new website, maintenancedisrupted.com. As part of that launch, we started a weekly giveaway. Um, last week was whoever posted a comment on any of our mediums. Well, this week's winner is Zach Walsh. Congratulations, Zach. You just won a copy of Bob Latino's book, who was last week's guest, Root Cause Analysis, Improving Performance for Bottom Line Results. I invite you to go check out our LinkedIn page and also our webpage for this week's blog on lubrication, as well as a new challenge this week to win another weekly prize. I truly hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you. All right. Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Maintenance Disrupted. Uh, today on the podcast, I have a special guest, a friend, a mentor, Doug Waitchin from UE Systems, and Steve was able to join us this week. So welcome, Doug. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Blair. Yeah, Great thanks, to be Blair. on. Good. So, so Doug, you, you're the, the, the VP of global operations for UE systems. Why don't you give the listeners a little background on what UE systems does? Who, who, who is UE systems? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, UE systems, we, we are a manufacturer of ultrasonic technology. Um, so that, that encompasses both handheld, what we call our ultra probe series of instruments, which are, uh, range anywhere from simple instruments for stuff like compressed air leak detection all the way up to uh, a high-end reliability instrument that has onboard sound recording and is used for monitoring condition monitoring of rotating equipment rotating assets uh, electrical discharge um, leak detection steam trap testing just a, a whole a whole host of different uh things that these handheld tools do and, and then we've also got um permanent monitoring, condition monitoring equipment, uh, sensor technology, cloud-based, um, you know, so it sort of runs the whole gambit of, of all your condition monitoring and predictive maintenance applications. And we, we've been around forever, uh, 1973. <laughs> uh, the company started with more of a, more of a focus early on in, in energy, you know, testing steam traps and finding compressed air leaks. But then as the like everything else, as the technology has evolved, um, the applications have evolved. And, and we're not only, you know, able to go out and troubleshoot things, but now we can very precisely diagnose issues. Um, and it, it's made a huge change in the marketplace. It, it has disrupted the marketplace to coin your that's the, right. That, that is name of your show. <laughs> name of the show, yeah. I, I do. I and, and I you, love the plug. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you would know, Doug, I'm a huge fan of disruption. And, and I was actually having a discussion because, you know, I live so comfortably outside of my comfort zone. My out of my comfort zone is my comfort zone. Um, so that's why I, <laughs> that's that's really why I really like uh, the word disrupted. And I might use it too much. And and what we were working on together, Doug, is is I don't want to, I hate using, I made a post about this on LinkedIn. I hate using the word game changer because everything in everyone's mind is a game changer, right? And obviously I'm tied very closely to this product is, is the smart loop. So I'm not going to call it a game changer, but I'll let our early beta customers and the demand speak <laughs> to whether it's changing the game of lubrication or not, which is, you know, this, this smart lube, right? And, and I guess in, in, in your words, Doug, or how would you describe what the smart lube, the on-track smart lube system is? Basically, it, it's a way um, to continuously monitor um, your, your assets that need to be lubricated, continuously monitor them for a condition change. Um, we've, we've got alarm levels set up in the, the on-track smart lube. So when it hits that, that lubrication alarm, um, the smart lube actually, A, will, will notify a person that it's in alarm, whether that be by email or, or by text. Um, and then it'll, it'll give you a very, as and I coined Blair's phrase all the time, very prescriptive alert. It's not going to give you a bunch of numbers. It's going to actually tell you this bearing needs lube. And at that point, when 
you know, you're using the OnTrack in conjunction with the smart lube, in other words, a single point lubricator, the ability to then lube it remotely without ever having to put boots on the ground and go out to that asset. That's the part that I'll use the phrase is, is a game changer. There's nothing like it out there um, in the past or, or, you know, so this is, this is truly something unique and different the way we're doing that. Right. And, and Steve, you got to have a question on that. I, I do because it seems like an and part of my ignorance, but it seems like an obvious application of hey, because we have wireless sensors, we have auto greasers. Yep. Um, those two things don't exist together, together right. or a system doesn't exist together at this point to uh, it automatically exist. trigger a, a loop point. <laughs> right, and I, I think it does yeah. now. It does not. And that's, and that's the feedback. When we talked about this, we get two responses is either it's finally, or it's, I've been telling you darn guys to do this for the last 10 years. Right. Because it's it's peanut butter and jelly. Right. And, and so I think it's important for our audience is, you know, and a lot of people understand ultrasound, but there's a lot of people that, you know, may not have grown up in the space that say, well, why ultrasound versus vibration? Right. Cause that's fundamentally from that point you were talking about Doug of, you know, identifying when lubrication is required, very, very difficult to do in vibration right now. There is enveloping peak view and stuff like that. That's getting, you know, somewhat, but the challenge I see with vibration, it's not repeatable. It's very application bearing specific. Whereas there's ultrasound, you know, that overall decibel or what we call friction level, essentially that's what it's doing is, is, is very telling of the, the lubrication needs of that bearing. And it's actually, Doug, you're the one that taught me this. So why don't you, the uh, best you can, try to describe what is ultrasound doing when, it, when you place an ultrasound sensor, like our 750 sensor on a bearing? Basically, what, what ultrasound is going to do, it's going to detect the high-frequency sound that's created from two sources, uh, either turbulence or friction. Um, turbulence, when it comes to any kind of like leak detection or any type of... Um, steam trap testing, things like that. But then when we get into the lubrication side of things and we talk rotating assets, it's that friction level that we're able to detect. And the beauty of it is it's not necessary to wait till there's damage. Essentially, when that lubrication starts to break down, the friction level is going to rise ever so slightly. And that's what ultrasound is very sensitive to, and the ultrasound sensors are very sensitive to. So essentially we can be very proactive with it. We can know when it needs to be greased before there's even a problem. Right, exactly. And, and that measuring of that friction is really what sets it apart, right? We're not measuring movement. We're not measuring displacement. We're measuring the friction. And this is, and Steve, this is where you can come in, you know, having experience with, with greasing and, and, you know, what we're talking about is rolling element bearings, right? Anything, you know, ball bearings, roller elements that are in there that you would, you would grease. So when you think about it is as that, you know, those elements are spinning really grease is designed to reduce the friction in that bearing. The whole point of a bearing is to reduce friction. Now, there's always going to be this inherent level of friction, right? So what, what um, you know, what the, the best industry have taught me about bearing lubrication is, you know, there's, there's a very, there's a good sweet spot, right? And that's to maintain, I think it was something like one mil or something like that of, of actually that thin film on those bearings, right? Any less is going to do damage anymore, going to actually increase the friction. So when we're say we're measuring friction, we see a change in that friction, but it's important to note, most people think, well, once, once you're generating more friction, aren't you starting to damage that bearing? No, what we're measuring is that change in friction where you start to lose that thin film on the bearing, but you're not causing any damage to that bearing yet. Now, if you keep on letting it run and letting that grease degrade over time, you will eventually cause, cause issues with that, right? So right then, the first part of the on-track system, I think, Steve, to your point, is why haven't these been married is really, it's really ultrasound that's going to drive reliable, repeatable, and accurate insights to when a bearing requires lubrication. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah. And, you know, to, to your point, they're talking about like the specific engineering application of the bearing and, and how they function as you, you know, as you start to lose your, um, your oil film mm -hmm. or that you start to lose the amount of lubrication and that friction increases, it just is increasing the load on that bearing. That's right. It's exactly. not, not necessarily taking it to a point where the bearing can't handle. It's just increasing that load 
to which point, you know, um, you could potentially fatigue out earlier if you let it go, uh, go at that same lubrication level for a longer point. So, so that's, that's exactly it. Right. And, and it, I, I, I digest data like crazy D- data is, is what fuels me and sometimes to my own detriment, but you know, and, and I end up reading these studies, you know, SKF came out with a study and this is decades ago, came out with a study saying that 80% of premature bearing failure gets traced back to a problem with lubrication, right? 80%. Now Mobius came up with one, I think it was like 40%. So big difference. But the reality is for anyone listening to this, if you have things that spin in a circle, you have bearings, uh, whether it's 40% or whether it's 80%, that number's still high, right? That's still a crazy amount of bearing failures that get traced back to lubrication, right? So there, there is other failure modes, you know, improper installation, bearing selections and stuff like that. But the impact of those is so much less than lubrication. And that's why we spend, as I say, we as industry spend so much time, you know, on what's called re-lubrication, right? Um, we, we invest in lubrication techs and, and all that kind of stuff, which I think is perfectly acceptable. Uh, in fact, when we designed the smart lube, we really wanted it to enable more of those subject matter experts of those lubrication experts, not ever replace them. because we still need those people. Right. So to go from this, why hasn't this been done before? So first of all, it was a limitation on the sensing technology, right? It had to be an ultrasound sensor to, to gather these insights. Um, the second part is, you know, integration with these single point lubricators or what some people call these automatic lubricators. Right. And when, when Doug and I were looking at this, Doug, we did a comparison of what's happening with these single point lubricators, you know, and, and for, for years, and Doug, maybe you can comment on how many years you've had this, but you've had a very specific product called the grease caddies that are designed to fit on these grease guns to go out there and actually monitor that friction using ultrasound as you're lubricating the bearing. Right. So that yeah, we've had those 10 years. Yeah. I love the grease caddies. Exactly. <laughs> I've used them a few times and it's, it's, it just makes it so much easier. It takes all the guesswork out. So, so I like that taking the guesswork out. So what does that grease caddy do, Doug, when you go out there when, and use it on a grease gun? Essentially you've got the ability to both listen and, and look at a visual display and it, it gives you the ability to real time as you're lubricating, see what the ultrasound levels are doing. Hopefully they're going down and then know when to stop, know when it's had enough. Um, so it, it, the only drawback to that, it works great. The only drawback to that is you need a person to go do it. Right. And, and I think that's where the huge disruption in this new on track and, and smart lube is, is in areas where, you know, they're not accessible or it's too dangerous to send a person. This is going to be able to take the person's place. Exactly. So if, if anyone listening, you start to picture in your head, right? You're going out to grease a bearing, right? Now you have this, um, grease caddy attached to your grease gun. So you're in, as Doug pointed out, you're not only knowing if it requires grease, but as you're greasing, you're listening or watching that friction to say, Hey, I've had enough grease, right? Cause by far we see more over greasing than we do under greasing. No doubt about it. Right. Everyone has decided that more grease is better because of a fear. Uh, I believe because of a fear of under greasing it. Right. Uh, we have a little bit extra because I don't know if I'm going to come back in enough time to actually replace that grease. Right. So really what our challenge was internally was when we're looking at this, right, we had the on track, which was monitoring the lubrication needs and health of that bearing. So we can identify when lubrication is required, how much lubrication is required and when it's starting to, that bearing is starting to generate an, more friction and we're entering out of that friction failure mode to, you know, uh, defects within that bearing. Right. But what we still didn't do is we didn't re- I always call it replace the person's left arm because typically people squeeze at the left or the right arm, right. Um, to actually squeeze the grease in. So yeah, Hey, this bearing requires lubrication. Well, that bearings on a cooling tower, right? So that means either you've had to bring that lubrication line out to go lubricate it or, or try to duck while that thing's spinning, right. Or shut down equipment. And obviously you want equipment running while you're lubricating. So that was the challenge. And that's why people have said, why is it taking so long to get this product out? Right. Um, so that, that was it. And, and Doug, I'm sure you've heard this. Um, when we, when we were developing this product, we went out there and we asked customers, you know, are you using these single point lubricators or lubrication or automatic lubrication devices? And typically <laughs> Doug, you can comment after this is I got two answers was, 
One is, yes, I've used them. They're in the dumpster behind the building, right? Because the uh, yeah. I, I, I ran out of grease. I thought they were greasing. It was greasing too much. Um, my lubrication lines got plugged. So it was trying to put grease in. And those, those lubricators, including our smart lube ones, um, can generate like thousands of PSI. They can blow the seal from here, you know, to, to your door frame away, right? Because they're generating so much pressure trying to get that grease in. But if you just, if it's just doing there and it's doing it blind, you have no idea what it's doing, right? You just hope that nothing has gone wrong. And those people that didn't throw them in the garbage bin beside um, or behind their, their factory or, or facility is they've delegated those to those very dirty, dull, dangerous type places. And where the risk of it not working or breaking down or the battery dying, the lubrication running out is less than, you know, the safety issues and things like that with access. Is that what you kind of found, Doug? Yeah. And, and it was funny that I'd add one other comment to that is in many cases, if they did use them and, and they were functioning the only reason they were functioning is because you'd have to set up a pm to go out and inspect the actual automatic lubricator you're creating a pm it, to go to took, a pm exactly exactly <laughs> and that was uh that was sort of the crazy thing they're like we have to send somebody around it almost defeats the purpose of having it automatically lubricate if you got to send people around to make sure they're, they're lubricating right so well and to- so Sorry, I, I just have one question, and that's kind of, you know, and I guess I know the answer to this, but um, when you have like a grease on a route uh, where you go and you grease it, however, once a week or once every mm-hmm. once a month, doesn't matter what it is, versus you're putting a lot of grease in all at once. Like I've seen some of them, 75, 150 shots of grease or whatever it is. Like, are you really counting that much? Maybe that's yeah. a discussion for another time, but, um, but like you're dumping so much grease in where these auto lubers are just putting small amounts of grease in more frequently so you get those times going back to our previous discussion of um you're more in that ideal lubrication realm um and reducing your total friction whereas yeah you you might have way too much grease at the beginning not enough by the time at the end right yeah it's kind of like going to the buffet you go in hungry and you leave too full right um, <laughs> dang mandarin buffets um so that's exactly yeah. it and i think the 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 challenge and even as we went out there and we partnered with um you know single point lubrication companies and we, we pitched the idea of this is what we want to do they said well just use time base right because you know if you calculate the right time you're never gonna have an issue right and it's funny because i i'm not in you know i i'm not an expert in lubrication or their pen to be but the, the analogy to me is no different than what we learned from Nolan and Heaps back in RCM in 19, late, late 1960s, early 70s is time-based maintenance doesn't work. Why would time-based lubrication work? And so I challenged it and I researched and I, I started to read all the time-based calculations that are out there to determine the grease quantity and the grease frequency, right? And if you start to look at some of those calculations, um, you have to make assumptions. They're literally called assumptions or correlation factors. So what's the average housing temperature? What's the average environmental temperature? Um, what is the speed of the motor? Right. And, and, and you start to think about it. Well, I have a, and more and more as industry starts to get more energy conscious, they're starting to get more VFDs and that range of which they operate is starting to change dramatically. Right. And duty cycles and things like that. So we've never had really these real-time insights into, you know, to t- make those calculations they are very theoretical right if that equipment stops is it going to still run that timer hey two months is i need to put more grease in well no it hasn't ran for a month of that right so then they start to put vibration sensors in these single point lubricators which is great because now you can start to calculate duty but it still doesn't address the other factors and that's where you know in maintenance we tried to make a shift of doing maintenance when the condition of the asset tells you to do it so wouldn't it make sense to do what we call condition-based lubrication, to do lubrication based on the condition? And really, when we came up and, and talked about the smart lube is friction is not our enemy, right? Fr- you need to have friction, right? It's really time. 
Time is our biggest enemy in the bearing lubrication world, right? What we're trying to do is get away from time. Time to tell us when to lubricate, but also time that it takes to actually properly lubricate a bearing. Yeah, I've been, I've been preaching lately, uh, just in time maintenance. Uh, in this case, just in time lubrication. And it's right. like, how do you maximize your value out of your assets? And it, it's, it's taking it to the point where you're doing it just before you're at your functional failure point, or in, in this case, just before you're out of the right amount of lubrication. That's and it, right. it's the most cost-effective way to operate the equipment because it's you're doing it just in time. It's like it's, there's a whole inventory methodology around it, but it's it's no different for for maintenance. And with all the sensorization we have out there, it's, it seems like a, a no-brainer to start moving that way. Exactly, and and what we found in our beta customers um, was a 95% reduction in non-value added lubrication tasks. So Steve, may maybe you can answer this question because I, it has probably been, I want to say it might even be longer, but 16 years since I've actually, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I've had some, some toys at home I have to lubricate, but from an industry manufacturing point of view that I've actually squeezed a grease gun. Right. I can't tell you last time I, I've done a route, so I'm not the right person to ask that. But Steve, you would probably know this from your reliability engineering side. Like what is involved in a typical lubrication route from, from your side? If you, if you, you know, your company or, or use what you've learned over the years, like how much non-value added tasks are in the lubrication route? Oh, it's, it's ton. Uh, first of all, getting around to the equipment, depending <laughs> on the footprint size of your yeah. facility. Yep. Um, like I've mapped out a few routes with people and it's like 15 floors or <laughs> go, <laughs> yeah. going up and down conveyor belts. Like it's, right. it, there's a huge amount of time just physically walking to the units. Then you get there and then counting out hundred pumps or however many pumps you have uh, on there. Even if you have a, a grease caddy, it, it does make it easier. It takes the guesswork out, but you know, it's still a long time and there's yeah. physical fatigue associated with that. So what, um, yeah, exactly. So what we did is we, or so we, but we, a group of us shadowed one customer on that and said, okay, you're about to go lubricate. What do you have to do? Right. In this case was, well, I had to go look up what the right grease was, right. Cause you don't want to mix greases. We all know that. Right. <laughs> well, this is, yeah. I think, I think this is this grease. I'm like, well, how do you know that? Uh, I got a hunch. This is what we typically use. All right. Um, and then he had to go, um, you know, make sure all the right permits and stuff were in place, right? You had to go walk to the asset. You had to go then, it was it was something like 15 pumps of grease, right? So you pumped 15 grease, right? And and when you think about that, so, and you go back to that study, um, the, the one I was referencing where, you know, 80% of premature bearing failure goes back to lubrication. It's not just the quantity of lubrication, it's contamination, um, all those other things, right? So this person, and not, not, saying everyone does this, but, you know, didn't wipe down the Zerk fitting and things like that. Right. And that's where single point lubricators really do well. You like properly installed, right. They make sure you use the right grease every time. So they have their advantages. Don't get me wrong. Single point lubricators are very good at making sure contaminant free, the right contaminant free grease or oil gets put in there every time. Right. But that person, when we looked at it and we started doing some calculations about 95% of the tasks that that person had to do was non-value added, meaning it, they didn't have a skill set for walking. Most of us can do that, right? Um, and a lot of the work came to documentation, right? How much grease did you use? All that kind of stuff, filling out paperwork, right? So what we wanted to do was really the the value that person added was squeezing the grease, right? Squeezing out of the out of the grease gun into there, right? In this case, they're a user of our equipment, so they were using the the grease caddy. Um, so really it was them, you know, getting that feedback, understanding when grease is required and when to stop applying grease. So we set out to really, you know, disrupt that from a time point of view to really save that time. So if you go through that example of that 15 floor one, you're talking about, can you imagine Steve, what it would, what it would mean? I'll ask you this. What would it mean from a business point of view or as a reliability engineer? If you were sitting there and as Doug described, you got an alert, you got a, you know, a text message and email saying, Hey, I'll make it up. Bearing 101 requires lubrication. And you said, Oh, cool. On track smart lube, go ahead and lubricate. And it started to lubricate, dispensing the exact amount of grease at the right time 
in the right amount of the right grease right then for you, right? And you can sit there and you can watch that friction start to go, right? You start to see that friction start to go down. Hey, it went down. Oh, it's going down more. Hey, it reached baseline, right? And then an ideal situation. Like, What would that mean to, to, to that just well, high maintenance you were talking about? Well, for, first of all, the business case to make for it would be pretty quick and easy. Um, like I, you know, not, not even considering how much the, the tool itself costs, just mm -hmm. when you look at the savings of it, cause it's, it's huge. Like you look at, first of all, this, the general, generally the skill set you have of your loop technicians, it should be a much higher skilled job than it tends to be treated. So you don't always have, um, your, your best technicians as loop, loop technicians. So they may not care or understand, and I probably shouldn't say not care. It's right. more so they aren't properly trained to understand the value of having the right grease in the right spot. Like grease is grease, right? So you're taking that away, first of all, which is um, a big deal. Mm -hmm. Then you're also taking away the personnel and you can use them for more value add tasks mm -hmm. rather than climbing those 15 floors. It's okay, now you can just have these because a lot of louvers are mill rights. You can have, right. uh, at least in Canada, and you can have them going and doing proper value add jobs or what even just for, tracking yeah. everything. Yeah. And you're not utilizing this high skill set for a job that really doesn't require one, but that understanding within that job is very important. And then again, uh, one of my top ones is always safety. And you're taking the out of the field, which is, a much safer place to be than being with the equipment and around the equipment. Cause anytime somebody is there, there's always the opportunity for injury or um, well, for there's always an opportunity for injury. So like you've hit three real big points, your time saver for people, value add activities for higher skilled trades and a big safety increase. Yep, you, you've nailed it. I don't it. know if that answered the no, question. It, it is. <laughs> Honestly, I can't remember my question. <laughs> but I, I might throw one other one in there, actually, guys, is uh, the actual commodity cost itself. You know, we've had multiple mm. customers, um, especially like in the, the food and beverage uh, type industries where, you know, maybe they have to use uh, food based, you know, grease. And that tends to be a lot more expensive. And if they can reduce by going to condition-based rather than time-based, they can reduce the amount they use. The commodity cost alone can be pretty substantial. That's savings. so true, Doug. So I know I know you and you've, I've actually um, seen one of your presentations with a customer on some of the loop savings or grease savings. Like what do you typically see in terms of savings of, of going out from time-based to ultrasound-based lubrication? Pretty quickly and I, I know one of the recent studies just a couple of years ago that uh one of our customers did um they actually saved i think it was like over 60 percent of what they were spending on grease because they were able to reduce the amount they used there's no waste when you when you start talking about you know doing it based on condition and when you start talking about using it with our smart loop system there's zero waste whereas you know filling the grease mm -hmm. guns and you know filtering and all the things that they would be doing on their own before they would go out on a time-based you know route they'd waste a lot so they'd over lubricate and use more and they a lot would go to waste so those two things combined right. creates a huge savings when you can be more precise in that and then you add in the extra life of the component and it's a no-brainer. It's a game changer, yep. right? It's, it, it actually, <laughs> absolutely. Now that now that you say that, Steve is funny. One of our customers, I won't say their name, and we like, we 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 typically do a demo for about an hour, right? And, and we do this conversation, we do a pitch, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" I'm like, well, "What's going on?" And Doug was on this call, and he's like, "This is the biggest no-brainers of no-brainers." <laughs> yep. Remember that, Doug? I'm like, yeah. Can we use that for our marketing? The biggest no-brainers of meet the smart lube. The, the biggest no-brainers of no-brainers, right? But you, you're exactly right. Um, and and what this customer actually taught me was, um, now I think it depends on which country, which state you're in. But you can't just well, typically you don't just throw your your old grease out the out the window either and stuff like that or old oil. So um, he says for every dollar you spend on new lubricant. It's, it's between 30 to 50% of that to actually recycle and get rid of it, right? So it's not just the lubrication purchase cost either, right? This is how you dispose of yep. it from an asset management point of view as well. 
So Doug, uh, you know, we've, <laughs> we took this, you know, we, we launched it in, in late October um, and the industry just blew up and we're, you know, we're like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> what's, hap- what's happening here. Right. Um, right. Cause that ability and, and, you know, we, we've had applications pretty much in every industry possible. Is there anything common that you're seeing from, you know, where people are, are starting to put this in or, or the applications that they're using? Yeah, I think the, um, the cooling towers, number one, um, and, and also things like air handlers, um, you know, up on a roof. It's, it's mostly, if you just think about any place that, where there's access issues or safety concerns, that's, that's right. where people are going to go out and use it. And I think once they realize that not only the convenience of being able to do it remotely and the time savings on, and, and keeping their personnel safe, but when it, when it comes in to the end of it, they're going to start to spread this out, um, not just to those inaccessible assets. They'll start to spread it out to any asset um, just because of the, of the precision of it. You know, you're using the exact amount of grease at the exact right time. Yep. All the push of your finger, right? I think that's it. And my colleague, yep. Graham Fonseca, he always says, uh, you know, we always get delegated to the dull, dirty, dangerous places. We always go to roofs or basements and things like <laughs> that, right? Um, but the, the reality is we're commissioning these all remotely because everything's, right? The first time you lube. I, I, and I was doing a, um, a thing this morning. I was, you know, lubricating a bearing in another country um, this morning, right? Just looking at it, right? Um, so, okay, let's just try a little bit, right? <clears throat> and we can wash the lubricator dispense, watch that friction go, right? And, you know, I didn't need my passport, didn't need to go through customs, right? Um, so I think that's that's some of the advantage. Now, we, we could probably do a whole podcast on security and connection types and things like that, right? Um, but the what, prime product to release during COVID, eh? Is, isn't it? Isn't it, right? Because um, that's what we found, right? Is I would say, you know, I would say about 50% of the people we talked to are at home while going through this conversation. And and what we're going to do is actually for our demo is get them to log in and I'm going to hold a lubricator up. I'm like, you hit the button and watch it come out. Right. Um, is, is the, is the goal of that. So I guess, Doug, from your point, how do people get started with this type of system? I, I would say the, the first thing is pick out um, a few assets that you have and that, use the criteria are they difficult to access are they in an, an unsafe location where you don't want to send a person and the third thing is pick out assets that you may have had problems with in the past you know from a, a lubrication standpoint um you know some untimely bearing failures and things like that but basically we've set it up so you can do a pilot on a, a very sh- small number of points um you know pick just a couple assets with four points each to a 16 point system and you know start with a with a simple inexpensive pilot and prove it out you know as, as Blair always says he likes to you know we like to land and expand so we like to land in a facility get them to try it understand the value uh see good results and then start picking out other assets that have the same criteria and what, what do you think about that from an approach Steve of the kind of the you know, start, prove it, expand. Yeah, that's, you know, that's how I, I operate. We're, we're looking at different trials all the time and it's always, all right, like this thing, we want to trial it. It's hard to build a business case and truly understand the impact of something without putting it in like this one. It seems a little bit easier. It's pretty more, a little bit more obvious on where your savings are going to be and you can kind of leave the more larger assumptions of like increased component life and things like that out of it and still get a decent ROI on that assumption. Mm. Um, so like, you know, essentially, honestly, it would just, for me, if I was pitching this, it would just be, Hey, look, it's taking our personnel out of this location, which is unsafe. And it would probably go ahead just based off of that. If, if you need more then it's, um, yeah, but again, always doing that pilot, test it out, and you should know within probably a few months on this one at least that whether it's working and is it going to work out for your site. And yeah, I think our customers love the idea that it's not a huge commitment 
mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a proof of concept. In other words, it's not like uh, putting a, a new boiler in and having to run steam piping all over a facility where you're committed, you know, you've, it's all or nothing with this. It's, it's a few assets, prove it out, get the buy-in you need from your lubrication team on site, you know, prove the value and then, you know, move to one other asset and prove the value on that. Then you, it, it gives customers and, and, it, and facilities an easy way to slowly expand and that helps them you know keep control of not only their budget but helps keep control of the hours they spend on installation and everything else it's just an easy you know slow steady expansion project for them rather than all or nothing yeah it's great when you can do that versus i have a few other pilots on my desk and i'm looking at i'm like oh man this is like half a million bucks to just try it and we don't even know this is when it's something small, you can throw one asset. It's like, oh, this is sure. this is fantastic. This will yep. this will go right away. <laughs> yeah, we we have people that like to give you an idea of size. They purchase a pilot just on a credit card, <laughs> like a P card. Yeah, right? there you, you go. You don't need to run it too far. You're not getting CO signature to do a pilot, right? Um, and that, that was really it was actually um, Doug that did that because Doug's like, hey, we believe in this product. We know its value. We know it's going to bring that return instead of putting the risk on the customer, we'll take the risk. Hey, you don't like it? We'll take it back, right? Try it out. Here's the pilot price, right? And that, that's really what you know, I saw as the main factor when having conversation with a customer is you know, not putting all the risk of a pilot working on the customer. If you believe in your product, if you tested it properly and you designed it right, you should at least share or the, the the vendor should have stake in the game, right? We have yet to have one come yeah. back to us, right? But that that's that was our stance, and that was really Doug that uh, that drove that forward. Well, and the typical comment we get, you know, when we started doing the presentations and showing the customers how the whole system, and it, you know, the, the the comment we would get at the end, they'd be like, "Well, how much is it?" We'd tell them, "Well, you can do a pilot on a on a couple assets for this." The main comment was always, "That's all." <laughs> they didn't expect it to be that that's well, all, that's all it costs yeah <laughs> but it's fun to hear when they say it. that's all it costs yeah and then we're saying like well like yeah. so many pilots i see come through and it's you're looking at the cost and the the risk and i think we had one it was came through in it um and like the vendor they're they're sitting there standing by their product and they're like yeah but you know if you decide if the pilot's a failure there was a cost to there was a cost to that I was like, I don't, I don't understand this pricing model. Like we're, we're trying out your product. We want to do it risk. We want to have as limited amount of risk as possible because we have no proven way uh, to value this right now. And that's, so. and that's just it. And we've seen that. And, and, you know, we have customers that say, Hey, what's our ROI on this? And, and I, I have to very politely go back and say, well, I don't know. Like what is safety to, to your environment? What, how much time are you currently spending on lubrication? And, and I said, for the calculation, I said, what if you were to save 10% of that? Well, it would pay for itself in six months. I'm like, yeah, but we're aiming for 95%, right? They're like, oh, no. I'm like, what if you were to have, so, you know, the whole point of this is really to, to, to save bearings, right? That's why we're lubricating in the first place. Otherwise we wouldn't do it. If you were just to save one catastrophic bearing failures from that premature bearing failure caused by lubrication, what would that mean to your organization, right? And it varies by industry. Some are like, man, that's like $500,000, right? And some are like, well, I've a redundant pump. I would just start the other one. Well, then, right, that's that's your business case, right? Well, and so many, so many people, when they're doing these business cases for these projects, forget the opportunity cost and that downtime cost. They just look at like this bearing costs X, X amount Oof. of dollars, but you start to include what value that uh, bearing is actually outputting or what the cost of one hour of that downtime is for your facility, That's right. then that ROI just, it, it's pretty exponential after that. Yeah. I just read a, a cause I was trying to figure this out and, and, you know, people are asking me for this. Okay. Can you send me a calculation? I'm like, well, I can send you a formula, but you have to put your own numbers in. I read this article about the true cost of downtime and it, and, Either you read it, Stephen, or you're spot on, or you're spot on with this author because that's what he said is is essentially you need to count for everything. So if you're in like farmer, for example, you got to think about, you know, obviously there's that downtime. I could have made this much product in this much time, but what does it do to supply chain and all this other stuff? Where's your operators just sitting around doing nothing while this is done, right? Like the the cost is huge. 
I, I believe uh, Bob Latino has a calculator just for that. Um, I can't remember. I, it's, I think you can get to it through his website at reliability.com. He was just on last week and yeah. he's talked about it on this podcast a few times, his uh, uh, opportunity cost calculator, that's, I think. That's right. Yep. Yep. What a great reference. When you, when you look at this, um, I'm, I'm just curious, um, Steve, from, from your point is, so one of the, one of the challenges, and we've always said this in, in, in reliability is we've always done it this way. Right. Um, so, you know, and we, we had Cody on about, um, you know, how he goes through that process of the user journey of implementing new technology and bringing people along for the ride. So, Moving from time-based, so using this calculator saying, hey, you should lubricate, I'm going to make this up, I can lubricate, you know, 16 shots every month, right? To moving to, you know, condition-based, it's got to be tough for a lot of people to go for that ride. I can imagine if they were supposed to lubricate from a calculator point of view every month, and it's now a month and a half, are you starting to sweat? Is that user going, oh my gosh, I need to go lubricate this thing. Right. So how do you think, Steve, like in, in your mind, if you were to put this in and, and, and maybe you don't have any of those people that they're just like, I don't care. I'm just going to wait until it tells me. Um, but what are what are some of the you know culture adoption challenges that you think you might face with something like this? Yeah, so there is um, there's a fine line between being proactive and reactive. Um, and the idea that being time based is is being proactive and you're solving things, but you're just losing a lot of that, potentially losing a lot of value doing that. Um, and that's probably gonna be the hardest one to contend. Like people will say it without even, I think realizing that that's kind of what they're talking about. Um, but it does seem like a lot of that condition-based maintenance is uh, almost turns, turns reactive because we just don't respond in a timely fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting, you know, whenever, and I think Bob said it well last week, is if, when somebody challenges you on something like, um, uh, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years, it's better because of that, you know, ask them to prove it. Why is it better? What makes it better than this? Um, and when they start to actually think about it and put numbers down or um, go about it that way, then their arguments potentially fall apart and if they don't fall apart then you know they're probably right be the better way to do it but it's it's about data-based decision making and far too often we rely on our gut to make decisions but our guts are often wrong um, and they all need to be proved out whether it's uh, with math or some other some other type of verification method but somebody's making an assumption they have to prove it for it too right they have to prove it. Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And what we got and, and Doug, you can add to this is what we got from our customers is, so we still put an alarm. If you want it, the ability to send out alarms on time-based, right? So as you're starting to trial this, and if you're so, you know, gut feeling is, is time, we'll set, you know, at, at the example I gave it a month, you're going to get an alarm saying, Hey, this is normally when you were lubricated, check it, take a look at the friction as, as a, you know, as a gut check to give you that, if you can sleep at night a little better, you can see, Hey, the friction's maybe increased by a little bit, but it has increased by a lot. Right. Um, just to sort of, we, 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 we see that all the time. Yeah. We see that all the time, even with our handheld instruments, you got to trust what the technology's telling you. And sometimes it's a, it's a big challenge for people to, to get their arms around that. And it takes some time. So you think about a pilot, it may take the whole three months, six months for that person to finally start to trust. That's yes, right. the friction didn't go up. It does not need to be lubed. That's exactly it. So we, we put two modes in the, into um, the smart loop. The first one is manual, which means you, with the right security and the right permissions, you hit the button, it's going to do dispense a known amount of quantity into that bearing. And the reason we did that is for those people, you know, uh, months will gone by. I was going to put a little bit in just to help me go, go ahead. Right. Um, the, the, the setback to that, it was, if it was already over lubricated, you would increase the friction and things like that, but you have the ability at any point in time to, to put grease in and, or oil and, and, and really You're only ever as good as the user. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then we d- just d- design. And, and this is really where a lot of the intellectual property in, it, 
intellectual property went into is this um, mode we called smart lube assist. And, and the reason we call it assist is a lot like um, driverless cars. So think about it from, you know, autonomous car, um, other than legal reasons why, you know, I, I even though I'm a, a, a technologist, evangelist, as I call them, I love it. The first time I put it on a highway and put on, you know, autonomous driving, I'd still be a little skeptical as a, as a truck in front of me starts to slow down, right? We all do it. Even in cruise control, right? We start to hit our brakes or accelerate, right? It's just our human nature. So chances are we're not going to go directly from, you know, how we're driving now to fully autonomous without some level of it. Of, of And it's like kind of like adaptive cruise control, right? Or the reason Tesla says, keep your hands on the wheel, right? So what we decided to do was call it smart lube assist. So the user has complete control over it. They tell it when to go lubricate, but instead of, you know, use that example of a hundred pumps, that's a long time to be sitting there pumping or to hit our manual button a hundred times, right? That's still a pain in the butt. So it's going to do checks for you. So when we talk about building confidence in there, it's going to do um, before it even puts in any amount of grease, every time it does, it, it's going to check to make sure there's enough grease in the cartridge in that single point lubricator. Cause we are talking about lubricator. We're handshaking data in between. So if that lubricator was to run out of grease, it was to fall off. It was to die. Um, the lubrication line was to fall off. We wouldn't see a change of friction. We'd set an alarm, right? So it's going to do that. It's going to make sure at no point when it's automatically greasing, is it ever going to overfill that grease capacity? Cause there can be times where that bearing has a defect. It's always going to produce friction, no matter how much grease you put in. Right. And we see that you can mask a issue with the bearing with, with grease or lubrication for a little bit, but it's going to come back. Right. So it's never going to overfill that grease capacity. Right. And it's always going to make sure as it's greasing, the friction never went up because what can happen is you can set this baseline. This is an ideal friction, but because of the way that bearing has been operated or installed, it's never going to get there. Right. So you don't want to sit there trying to put grease in there for three days right? Because it's never going to get down to friction. So we're doing all these, what we call confidence checks to build the confidence in those people that are typically out by that bearing, right? And what it's going to do is it's going to, you know, what we teach of ultrasound best practices in terms of lubrication, it's going to follow that sequence every time. It may take this thing, you know, half an hour to fully grease that bearing and you can watch it every step. I put grease in, I did this, I did this. I'm waiting five minutes, let that grease settle in, check my friction and I'm going to do it again. Right. So you can watch it the whole entire time. And that's really what we designed. And it's going to send you an email when it's done saying, or a text message, Hey, you know, Steve, I was able to grease this bearing. I used, you know, I'll make this number up uh, 14 ounces of grease. Um, it took me 33 minutes. I was able to get the friction down to this level. Right. So all that information is documented for you. You can watch it. You can stop it at any point in time, but that's really what we did thinking of you, Steve, from over the line is that, culture change, that adoption, sustainability, right? So we didn't want this thing just going willy-nilly out lubricating your bearings, right? And, you know, the machine was off and it started to lubricate because I thought the friction was lower or vice versa, or you're doing maintenance and all of a sudden grease starts coming out, right? So what, what, what do you think about that? It doesn't even think, sound like the change management piece is really even that large. Uh, just like, basically it's just, hey, you don't have to do this anymore. And maybe, um, you know, go replace it every now and again or something like that. Right. Like it's, yep. <laughs> you know, in terms of easy solutions and low hanging fruit, like that's kind of, that's what everybody's always after is just the low hanging fruit and easy solutions. And like uh, looking at a sustainment side, it's as long as if it works and somebody's monitoring it and that's probably the biggest, biggest, it uh, would be the biggest issue is making sure somebody's monitoring it and checking up on it regularly. Right. Um, like a lot of places have centralized asset health teams to do that, but you can get overconfident within the equipment and, and take your eye off of it. And that's going to ruin any sort of sustainment. And if you have a few of those fail, it's just going to, um, and, and then of course have a, a wider bearing failure off of that. That's just going to destroy your program and any buy-in you had for it right off the get-go. So making sure that monitoring is set up. Mm -hmm is probably the biggest key to success. Good. And, and Doug, from, from your part, where, where do you see this technology going? Like, do, do you see it, you know? Uh, from from the what we've seen so far, just over the last couple of months, um, and, and the customers of ours that had mature lubrication programs that were, that were actually 
managing it proactively. They were, most of them were testing, you know, route-based, you know, going out, testing their assets, route-based, testing hundreds of points with a handheld ultrasonic, identifying when the, when the friction level went up and then sending a lubricator out with the grease caddy um, to apply the correct amount of lubrication. You know, they, so if they understood that, this is just such a natural progression to just take the touch points between the person and the asset away as much as possible. So I see that happening more and more, especially in environments where, you know, manpower is, uh, is at a premium. You want them to be doing proactive maintenance tasks, wrench turning, rather than um, having to go out and do things like lubrication. So the more you can automate this, uh, the more it opens up the maintenance department to be more efficient. And I think that's really where, where companies are starting to be early adopters to this. Yeah, that was well said. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good note to, to wrap up this podcast. We're, we're going to be going over here shortly. So Doug, where, where could uh, the listeners find out some more information about UE systems and particularly the, the smart loop? Well, certainly come to our website, um, uesystems.com and, uh, and there's usually banners right on the front of our front page talking about uh, new products, but yeah, that's, that's probably the best place or contact us, you know, either by email or by, uh, by phone you can certainly get in touch with UE systems at 800-223-1325. Perfect. Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Doug, Steve, uh, any more questions on your end? Other than oh, no, nothing for me. How do you, how do you get one of these? But we'll talk offline. I was actually, I was actually <laughs> just going to the the UE system, following what you said there. That goes like, hey, I need to send this to our plant guy. See if he's uh, looked at it. There. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, actually, I would recommend. So if you go to uesystems.com, um, the banner that Doug talked about it is Smart Lube, and um, we did a product launch webinar um, back in October, which walks through the whole system. Um, and you you can watch that webinar if you want to dedicate an hour. Um, but right on our website, you can actually book a demo and you know, seeing is believing the minute you see, and what's great about this is we've had customers like the, like the solution that have willing to say, yeah, you know, share my data. Obviously we're not going to go lubricate their bearings for them. Cause that would probably be problem, troublesome, but we can see their data coming in live. You can see what a live bearing looks like. You can see when they've lubricated it. Um, you can log on, you can hit a button from wherever you are. And I'm in Toronto here. You can see, you know, lubrication, a lubricator start to dispense lubrication from here, right? So those are the things where we're trying to challenge how we, in this virtual world, how we demonstrate and, and show the value of these systems. So I encourage you to go to our website, go over to the smart, click on the smart lube banner, and it'll take you through all the, all the relevant information there. And Doug, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Hey, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was great chatting with you, Doug.